Hey, it's Seth. Before we get started on the show this week, we just wanted to let you know that we had a little bit of a mishap with our recording, so my audio does not sound quite as good as it normally does, kind of how it sounds like right now. So uh, we think the conversation is still pretty good. We hope that you'll stick around for this episode, but we wanted you to know before we got started that we are using backup audio and not our not our main thing. All right, here's the show. Hello and welcome to Rewatch. My name is Seth Scruggs. And I'm Zachary Vaughn. And this is the show about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet. Each week on this show, I pick a movie that I've seen and Zach has it, and he picks a movie that he's seen and I haven't. And we watch them and we talk about them. I don't, I don't, this week is a little bit depressing. Yeah. Um, We've had a couple of those this season. We've had a couple of those this season, but this one, I think, this one may take the cake for most depressing. And so. Let's start with the Vietnam War epic that you had us watch. Let's do it. Uh, so, Full Metal Jacket. So we did Full Metal Jacket, which is directed by Stanley Kubrick, came out in 1987, starring Matthew Modine, Adam Baldwin, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, and Arlie Ernie, who my roommate informed me was an actual drill sergeant who retired from that and started acting in movies pretty much as drill sergeants. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's split about two fifths to three fifths. The first two fifths being uh, training military, uh, Marine training on Paris Island. And then the last three fifths is, them going out as marines and um it's very much a uh an anti-war war movie showing like the 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 toll of training on the humanity of soldiers and then the toll those soldiers then take on a country that did not invite them and all of that taking even more of a toll on the soldiers. Yeah. I mean, it's very much in that same vein as apocalypse. Now another Mm -hmm. movie that we talked about on this uh, show last season, one of the things that hit me was that in I want to hear you speak to this, but it's a war movie that doesn't involve a lot of war. Right. Um, It's only the last half hour, 45 minutes, probably that really has it. Right. Even, even when there's like, there's a lot of stuff that happens in war, quote unquote, but not a lot of like actual fighting that takes place. Um, So like why, I don't know if you're specifically drawn to movies like that or not. Um, but this is the second one that we've talked about. It's kind of like that apocalypse now being another. Um, and I think, I think that there's something historical there. That's part of the reason that it's happening, but like, why, like what draws you to that kind of movie? Well, for one, I love a good anti-war war movie. Um, I think the ultimate actually, no, Hacksaw Ridge isn't an anti-war movie. It's just a movie about being about a pacifist going to war. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I like the non-glorification, just the, the straight up. No war is awful. Um, perspectives showing um, just the, the grotesque realities that people face mentally and physically. Um, and so this is very much like the first, the first 45 minutes of this movie is grueling mental training, like mental breaking down of these, 
these young men's wills to make them killers. And then it it cuts to, I think, even probably just a couple months after they've been deployed. And you see how, in some ways, they've, uh, they've found their personality again, but they've also definitely developed different personalities than they had before. Like, you don't see what they had before specifically, but you know <laughs> that their personalities are different now based on how their training affected them and how being in a war zone has affected them. Um, but one of my favorite parts, I guess one of my favorite roles is Joker because he's actively pushing back against the war that he is currently in. Um, yeah, I think, I think I like war movies that, don't that aren't about war and glorifying the war so they show they usually show a different side focus more on the the people in it than the actual war itself which is why i think i like apocalypse now which is why i like the thin red line Mm -hmm. um another great movie that we can't do here because you've seen it as well you couldn't you well, more specifically, you gave it to me to watch because you couldn't yeah. wait to do it on. That's the true. Because That's you true. Like, yeah, we have to see this right now. Yeah, um, but yeah, Thin Red Line does that in an amazing way too. Yeah i I was thinking a lot about how um, in college, in my English classes, we talked about how like the poetry of World War One reflects that and kind of it because it was such a barbarous thing that people hadn't experienced before. And so the poetry that they were writing in the trenches were, it would like mock this idea of patriotism and mock the war that they were in. And it feels like a lot of the anti, especially anti Vietnam movies that came out. And I mean, Stanley Kubrick is no stranger to anti-war movies. He does Dr. Strangelove. 20 years i want to say that was like 65 maybe 64 65 so he's doing that like 20 years before this movie and so he's protesting a different word there but he's he's very anti-war in that um in the same way that apocalypse now is and so it, it feels like a lot of these guys are coming back from these experiences and making something that is actively pushing back against what they experience. And that happened with World War II to a different extent. Um, there's a documentary, great documentary on Netflix based on a book called Five Came Back, where it discusses the way that these directors would went to war and experienced something there and came back and made movies that reflected those experiences. The most notable being Best Years of Our Lives, where the director came back and really he doesn't make as much an anti-war movie as he makes this like anti-Americanism movie. And I feel like that's a little bit of what um, the, the directors are doing or what Kubrick is doing here um, in kind of pushing back against what we might now call toxic masculinity Though I don't know that, I don't know that it's masculinity as a whole, but I think in a masculinity in a codified form that they're pushing in the military here. Yeah, weaponized masculinity. Oh, that's that's a much better way of putting it. Yeah, I like that. I like that because it's not just that it's toxic in that sense. Like it's it's so much more than toxic. It's yeah, weaponized. I like that. One of the things I was thinking about, and I was thinking about this in context of Apocalypse Now 2, and so I wanted to I wanted to talk about it with you. Is there's a lot of times the discourse that surrounds movies, like the the writing, the talking about it almost takes everything that the movie is saying as though the movie is endorsing it. 
And so we talk a lot about how, well, oh, the, this movie wouldn't be made today because people can't take a joke or people just don't get it. And I don't want to be that harsh and say, like, I don't think Full Metal Jacket would have been made today. Um, I don't think it would, but for vastly different reasons, just because the cultural landscape is so different. But I was thinking a lot about, like, the the soldiers have this very militaristic view and frankly a very racist view toward the people that they are fighting and this is specifically in the second half of of the movie and I was thinking about the difference between description and prescription in this and how it's very easy. So the, the line, when we first meet Joker after the training, there's kind of a break and we see him and he and another soldier are being approached by a Vietnamese prostitute. And she is playing up these stereotypes. She's playing up th- this kind of sexy Asian fantasy that these guys supposedly have, right? So she's speaking in a very stereotypical um, broken English. She's perpetuating these stereotypes. And the soldiers just kind of laugh at it. And it was seen there, like in one way that could be seen as a perpetuation. Perpetuate. Is that the right word? Perpetuation yeah. yeah. Of harmful stereotypes. But to me, it almost seemed as though they were using those stereotypes against themselves. Does that make sense? As in the the movie is using it, is using the characters to perpetuate the stereotypes against themselves. Yes. Not the characters actively. Yeah. No, the characters acting are. Yeah. Right. But the movie itself, the filmmakers are saying, yeah, these are real stereotypes but they're not endorsing the stereotypes. They're depicting the stereotypes, but it's so the film, what it feels like Kubrick is trying to do is put you, the viewer into the heads of these characters. He spends the whole first part of the movie trying to get you into the feeling what it's like to go through this training and to be berated by this terrible drill sergeant and to have to go through the grueling training and the humiliation of what's happening. And then he pops you into the war and it feels like what he's saying is, okay, here's what all of that training does to your head when you're put into a war zone. And they're being trained to be racist and to dehumanize their enemy. And so the point is not, well, Kubrick was racist against Vietnamese people. Like, I don't think that's the point. I, it feels like the point is that he's trying to put you into the head of the people so that when you get, when you're put into that war zone, you feel and experience it the way that they do. Does that, does that all make sense? Like I, I just pontificated yeah. for a long time about that, but I'm, I'm curious what your take on that is. Yeah. Uh, going off of your point about they're being trained to dehumanize the enemy when, when you are specifically conditioned to dehumanize anything, then it becomes very easy to dehumanize more than what you were conditioned, trained to dehumanize. So, like, they they dehumanize the people that they're defending by seeing 
by not being able to see that just because these soldiers are here for what the country has told them is the cause of freedom for these people doesn't mean that these people want it this way from these people. And so they dehumanize that them by saying, oh, you're just in distress and ungrateful. So I'm not going to I'm not going to take anything that you say seriously because you're just out of your mind. Who wouldn't want freedom? Who who wouldn't just be grateful that people are coming in and doing the fighting for them? Um and there's there I'm there is a whole lot of racism baked in where you've got them flying in the helicopter and this guy's gunning down presumably South Vietnamese farmers or mm-hmm. North Vietnamese farmers who are still mm-hmm. either way they're not Viet Cong. Yeah. Um and Civilians. yeah. Uh and you just see how the 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 hate and and desensitization that they've been that's been ingrained into them so that they can kill the people that are the enemy the soldiers shooting at them but it, it bleeds over into in into places that it shouldn't and a lot of that isn't necessarily just because of the dehumanization training a lot of it could also is likely also because of ptsd and like like all sorts of experiences because war is hell and you start it's you you see a couple different characters who their identity becomes i'm really good at killing Viet Cong. um so you, you like the guy in the helicopter you got animal mother um the the combat people very much go into a state of killing is is uh like what gives me joy what brings me happiness which is what they were trained to do but it's it's it has its <laughs> it it has a lot of consequences Right. And to circle back to, like, from a filmmaking standpoint, it never feels like the filmmakers are endorsing that behavior. And so I think that there's a, there are a lot of times that people watching films just assume that if they see it on screen, the filmmaker is endorsing that behavior. And so it becomes hard sometimes to differentiate those two things. But here, like, it's so clear that he's trying to, he is depicting this behavior in as brutally a way as possible and kind of as flat as possible so that you understand the problem that this behavior is. And I think it's important that the first, we'll call it half, of the movie, the Paris Island training, I think it's important that that be so long and extensive that you it really sets up the effect it has on them in the, in the second half. Because right. if it weren't as long, if it weren't as traumatizing and effective and thorough then it wouldn't be as obvious that this violence intentional and i get i get why it's done whether it's good or bad this isn't about uh this this podcast isn't about the morality of war (laughs) um or the morality of uh uh soldier training but that's not something we're qualified to talk about um but like i mean the the a lot of 
like he treats them like garbage. He tells them that they are garbage. And like, that's, that's the point of their training is to break their souls and build their bodies so that they'll follow orders and be able to, so that they'll obey orders and be able to carry out orders. Um, and then you see his, you see, cause you, you see toxic masculinity leading to weaponized masculinity. Um, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, and I'm, I want to go. Let's go there next. So uh, I want to talk about the the structure of the film since you brought it up. The kind of being divided into two halves seems like a weird choice in a lot of ways because the character that you really follow through the entire first half, first act, we'll we'll say of the movie is dies at the end of that first act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really, it feels much more to set up the importance of that experience on Joker than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like watching it for the first time, not knowing what was going to happen, that was incredibly shocking. Because I knew knew that there were kind of two halves of the movie, but I didn't know what happened at the end of that first half. And so that really shocking end... It's like, I don't know where you go from there. Like, I don't know what else you depict. And so it felt, um, we talked a little bit, I guess, in our last episode where we talked about the musicals, about how a lot of musicals have that first act, second act thing with a time jump in the middle, typically. A lot of staged musicals. And that was kind of what I was saying. I thought, I felt like that was kind of what they're doing here a little bit where the, the jump kind of has the same functionality in that we have all of this set up and it's almost like two chapters of a book loosely connected. I mean, and it's based on novels so that makes sense, but loosely connected that all kind of builds on each other. The two experiences build on each other, but they're not, they're not so linked like, you know, two, two scenes in a typical movie are that are right next to each other. And so it really did feel like that kind of two act structure of, well, here's a complete story and here's a complete story. And they're linked a little bit through character and theme. So what did, I want to hear like from you, like on that, like first experience of watching it and the second experience and more, I don't know how many times you've seen it. I think this is just the second time. So when, when there's that kind of ending, like what was that like for you knowing it was coming and having a little bit more experience with it in the second half? Like, what did you think of that? I think, I think it's, it's, it's weird because there are the distinct two halves. Um, and while each could be fine on their own, um, they they do complete each other definitely. Um, one thing, one thing that I just because I'm a story nerd um, jumps out to me is I when I'm watching something, I'm trying to figure out if it's an Aristotelian comedy or tragedy. Comedy basically meaning happy ending. Well, no. Comedy meaning the main character uh, goes from character flaw to character strength. Tragedy going from character strength to character flaw or character flaw to worse character flaw. Um, basically, yeah. Um, and this could be seen, I think, as... A comedy if you're looking at it from a purely data uh driven um lens where you're looking at it and taking everything at face value and seeing oh okay he's doing his job he is now officially a killer that's what he was training to be from the beginning but i think the character of joker is such that it's very much a tragedy 
where he I'm I'm assuming he hadn't taken a life until the end of the the movie when he shoots the sniper. And so you see this guy who his his strength was that he um he helped out the guy who was lagging behind the guy who was uh bringing the rest of the platoon down and then he was pushing back in the little ways that he could against the war from being in it and overseas and then he is still not quite he's still not quite all in to actually give his soul over to the war until his one of his friends from Paris Island gets shot I guess one of his platoon mates from Paris Island gets shot and killed. And then that pushes him to the edge of giving his soul over. And then finally at the end, he does go over the edge and give his soul over to the war. And uh, like he, he, he has on his helmet written born to kill, but he, I'm guessing he had never killed until this moment. Mm -hmm. And so that's almost fulfilling his tragic destiny that he ironically uh, wrote on his helmet. Yeah. Well, and so you're a story nerd and a film history nerd. So the there's a there's very much a Kubrick has this kind of nihilist tendency in his films to. I mean, specifically when I, when I say that, I'm thinking of something like um, Doctor Strange Love or um, Clockwork Orange or this movie, not so much 2001 or something like that, but, you know, Doctor Strange Love ends with shots of nuclear bombs while this beautiful music plays. And I think that there's a pretty clear line between that and the ending of Full Metal Jacket where there are a bunch of soldiers having just destroyed this town, dealing with all sorts of things. You know, what you're talking about, how Joker has killed for the first time. And they're singing the Mickey Mouse Club theme song. So obviously there that's he really is pushing into that sense of irony and nihilism that and at the end of the day you can just walk away singing a song. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 all it takes. So I think that's in a way very characteristic of him as a director and as a storyteller. Well, and I think the importance of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse song is that these were young men yeah these are all these not even were these are all boys Mm -hmm. put into this situation and like 15 years ago just 15 years ago they were singing this this song was a an integral part of their childhood mm-hmm. and now they're over and there's no happiness. There's no joy. There's only the brotherhood that they have and what little innocence is left is their connection to their childhood, which wasn't that far off. Right. Well, on that, bright note why don't we take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about paul thomas anderson's 2007 film there will be blood hey what's up this is seth scruggs host of rewatch that show that you're listening to right now and if you like this show there's also a good chance that you would like our youtube channel You can find it, Mark Spots the X Productions, on YouTube. There's a link in our show notes. 
And over there we have short films and behind the scenes content and a bunch of other stuff that we have planned for the rest of this year. You can go over there and subscribe. That really helps us out and helps other people find our work. And if you like this show and you want to help other people find our work, you can follow the show, give us a review and a rating, and that really helps other people find our work as well. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, we're back and we're here to talk about There Will Be Blood. There Will Be Blood is the 2007 movie about Daniel Plainview, an oil man in the early 1900s. He's played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He faces off against a small town as he tries to build build his oil empire. Primarily, he faces off against a young minister... Uh, who might is probably running a cult if we're if we're honest. Yeah. Um, named Eli Sunday, who is played by Paul Dano. Dano. I don't know why I said that so weirdly. It's direct, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and it's really good. I really like it. It was nominated for Best Picture in two thousand and seven against No Country for Old Men, uh, which was shooting nearby at the same time. Which would have been so perfect if we had put both of those in the same rewatch episode. That would have been really funny. Uh, Unfortunately, we have both already watched those. We've already seen No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. That's that's the one. That's the one. Because we are talking about There Will Be Blood. So, Zach, do you have... I literally just finished this a few hours before we started recording. I ran into some scheduling issues and watched this movie at 7.45 in the morning, which is not an experience that I, I recommend uh, because it's it's pretty dark. It's kind of depressing, uh, but it's very good. I, I still enjoyed myself a lot. So I want to hear, I, we've not really talked about this at all. No, we haven't. So I want to hear, I want to hear your thoughts. So I watched this late at night. Um, so there is a little bit of, there is a little bit of, um, probably some some tired delirium as i was getting towards the end of it um but first of all i want to say it does deliver on its name because there is blood um and most significantly at the end there's a little bit of spray sometimes throughout but for the most part there's not really blood in it until the end which i think is a neat, that's a neat little a neat little <laughs> delivery and expectations it's a a promise that is kept yes um gosh it's it's really good um and i hate so many people in it (laughs) uh because i'm supposed to like you're not supposed to like any of the characters no um they're just all they're all just a bunch of terrible people should we um, should we start with the obvious then? Because the only thing that we actually did discuss beforehand is that Daniel Day Lewis might be the best actor, yeah, to ever do it. And I have a lot of reasons for that, but I want to hear your thoughts on his performance because, really, at the end of the day, this movie lives or dies on his performance. He's in. Mm-hmm. Not only is he in pretty much every scene, he's in pretty much every shot of this movie. They are very, there's very little of this film that he is not in. Mm-hmm. Um, and really it's about his kind of corruption as a, as a man and his stubbornness and where that gets him. So, so yeah, tell me what you thought of that. I mean, for one, like you have to be, a powerful presence to pull off Daniel Plainview. Like, not a powerful presence with depth, mm. which I think a lot of people can do either of those. But I think a lot of, but not many people can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people who can do both still wouldn't match. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis's no. uh, 
his his delivery um because there's gosh like it's not there's really not a whole lot of behind like uh, of showing his his vulnerable side right. in it but there's like be- behind any behind a really powerful really compelling shallow miser i guess he's not really a miser so much as just a greedy uh greedy man um there is fear yeah um because he he feels like nothing is ever enough um and and I feel like there 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 I think I think there are oftentimes there are two takes for the greedy the greedy villain honestly <laughs> like like he is um, there's greedy because they feel like uh, they need all the all this money all these things to be happy and then there's greedy because they feel they need all this money or they need all this, these things, these things to be safe. Mm. Yeah. And I think the second is the most compelling for one and two, the, the most subtle, the most difficult to present. Um, and that's, that's how I see. That's how I see Daniel Plainview. I don't. I don't see it as he needed all of this stuff to be happy. I don't think he was trying to be happy. I think he was trying to be safe and stable. Yeah. I would um, agree with that. And in doing that, he put a bunch of other people in extreme harm. In in harm's way, and just through harm. Um. And so I think. I think that all all told is one of the reasons why daniel day lewis's performance was so incredible because he captured that like he was able to show the fear in the confidence there's there's a difference between film acting and theater acting and the biggest thing is the ability to play toward the camera. And what that means is different for different people. But I think the thing that makes a great film actor, and Daniel Day-Lewis is a great film actor, is, number one, he just has an interesting-looking face. Like, the the structure of it, like, and that's just genetics. That's, like, the structure of his face is, like, an interesting face to look at on screen. It catches light in an interesting way. He couldn't do anything about that, but he kind of lucked out. In addition to that, and in addition to all of the external things that he's doing, you know, the accent that he's using, the voice, the physical mannerisms of like the way that he holds his body and such, all that matters a lot. But the biggest thing is what he's doing with his face and the ability to show what's going on behind his eyes and the subtleties of that, that absolutely knocked it out of the park. You know, it's, it, it would be a good performance without that. It is a phenomenal, like top tier, one of the best ever because of the, because of those other things, because of that, subtlety in his face and in what he's able to communicate in a look and it's amazing i dang dang um have you seen any other pta movies i don't think so no okay so this is your first kind of experience in his world um the thing that struck me most about this movie um, on a second watch was that I, I don't remember much of the story. I didn't, 
I didn't remember a lot of that. Like I knew, I knew what happened and really it's not an incredibly complex story because of the way that it is much more portrayal of the character. But I didn't remember a lot of lines from the film. I didn't remember a lot of those like details, but I remembered almost all of the shots from this movie. And I think that like Paul Thomas Anderson just has such an incredible visual eye in the way that he's able to frame things. And some of that here as a cinematographer, but having seen Liquor's Pizza, his latest film, where he was the cinematographer, it's very clear, like, he's driving a lot of that as well. And he, like, some of the visuals in this movie are just insane, and they they stick with you. Um, And again, I think some of that is attributed to the actors in the center of the frame being good at what they do. But I think part of it is also the ability for these these people to capture these images. Was there an image in the film that stood out to you? The one that that stays in my mind more than others is when he like right before he's baptized where he's sweating, Mm -hmm. he's spitting out the words as, uh, as Eli is circling him uh, like a vulture um, having him say all these things, confess his confess his sins and confessing them the way Eli wants him to, to make him feel even worse about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and really to humiliate him in front of yeah. the congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that jumps out to me the most because for one, I'm a sucker for close-ups. Two, um, it just, the, the discomfort of that scene was just incredible (laughs) because he's yeah he's he's this guy who is a terrible person is being humiliated in front of everybody which is just still super uncomfortable because he's being humiliated by an equally but opposite terrible person yeah and and i think you're not even opposite though like just an equally terrible person slightly differently Well, and I think you're hitting on what is so impressive, both about Anderson's direction, but also Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, which is that there are moments of real sincerity from Daniel Plainview in this movie that make you connect to this character, even though he's a terrible person even though he's awful, even though ultimately what we see at the end is that his greed and his drive, it leaves him alone. Lit- I mean, literally alone. Um, having supposedly accomplished what he came to accomplish. But he is so like, but there's just these subtle moments of being able to capture, you know, the fact that you feel like he really does love his son at moments and you feel like he really does care for the people that work for him. And he really does care about taking care of them and whether or not that's a trick to get you to buy into the character of Daniel Plainview, or if that's really him, I think it's up for discussion, but I think that's a, that's a fine line to walk that they really nail here. For me, I always return to the image where the oil derrick is on fire, just absolutely in flames, and he's just sitting there watching it. And I think that's it. both like on a story perspective, you know, he he's experiencing everything going up in flames and literally it's happening, but also just on a scope perspective like that's such an amazing shot and this movie is very much in the 
in the vein of a classic Western. And so to pull that imagery, that epic scope imagery, and this is one of the only movies of Paul Thomas Anderson's career that's in this kind of aspect ratio. That's in a two, three, five, you know, cinema scope aspect ratio or two, four, I'm not sure which one it is, but you know, that's not, that's in specifically in order to capture the scope of the landscape. It's in a two, four, okay. uh, 2.39, but yeah. it's specifically to capture the landscapes that we're experiencing. And so to be able, he's making one of the things about Anderson is he's making the most use out of his frame at all times. And so every frame is specifically using all of it, every inch of that screen in order to communicate something, to capture your eye, to draw you in. Um, and that, it's phenomenal. Again, not having seen Anderson's work, um, it's a very interesting film to come into. Yes. <laughs> Was there anything else that stuck out to you in that? Like thematically, like what, what did you feel like you walked away with from the film? Um, I saw a lot of similarities tonally, um, with, um, the devil all the time, partly because it's, kind of close in time frame for parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the end of there will be blood butts up towards the beginning time, gotcha. the beginning era of the devil all the time. Um, but noticeable. And so the similarities being um, pretty much everybody's a terrible person. <laughs> um, and that's it's very down and demure but one thing this has over the devil all the time is it felt it's good that and um it it felt controlled not controlled it felt it, it felt purposeful like you're yeah. you're seeing oh well this guy is a terrible person he's a greedy oil man this guy who is supposedly a man of god is also terrible because he is also greedy and so you have two villains butting up against each other you're seeing who is and because one of one is a noticeably moral figure in the community you're seeing okay which one's better which one's worse which one has the moral high ground in all these places and most of the time most of the time it's the greedy oil man even though he does put people at risk and um he does abandon his son in certain ways not all physical but um because he does all these things but he does show that he does care for his people even if he's willing to also put them at risk for his own money versus the uh the the preacher eli sunday who doesn't do any of that but he does um shame guilt and manipulate and gaslight his congregation so you have the the comparison of this guy you have uh you, you have the the greedy oil man who's doing bad things and good things like noticeable noticeable things like making decisions that are doing good and things that are doing bad versus the more subtle well the preacher appears to not be doing anything bad but in that disguise he he has disguised the evil of the manipulation yeah and i think that that 
that intentionality that you're talking about comes through in every frame. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that when I was watching it, is that sometimes you can think about how, you know, should the, you know, maybe that cut should have happened sooner or the camera should have been in a different place or something. But every, every shot of this film feels so purposeful and intentional and controlled even to what you were saying that it's like nothing feels out of place. Nothing at all feels out of place. And he holds a lot on faces. He, he's really good at photographing faces, I think. And he holds a lot on those and lets you feel everything that's happening with those characters. He lets you feel every moment of everything. Um, and I think it just like shooting straight through the story to the craft, like everything, they're not two separate things. They're both building each other up in order to reach that point. It's not like, it's not like they're two distinct things. They, they're completely intertwined, which I think is the sign of the best kind of movie is that the, the cinematography is not just an interesting way to capture things, but it drives home the point. And I, and I feel like that's done really, really well here. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find me online. I'm Seth Scruggs. I'm at Seth Scruggs on Instagram and Letterboxd. Zach. I am at Zachary Vaughn or just Zachary Vaughn. I don't know. Whatever it is, whatever Letterboxd letterboxd thing is <laughs> i am just zachary vaughn um and then on instagram i am at zachary is thinking yep and you can follow mark spots the x productions on instagram and youtube the link to the youtube page is in our show notes and you should definitely subscribe to that. you should do that you should really do that all right zach next time on rewatch it's gangster week good fella part two or, no not good the godfather part two and good fellas so we will see you then <laughs>